0: So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. in the Bible with which we're so familiar and that we quote so often that we actually end up using them to mean something that is not what they were originally written to mean and to quote them in a way that uh, is not giving the correct sense of the passage or the particular phrase in the context in which it actually appears in the Bible and that phrase that we just read there My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts, is, I think, one such verse, one such quote that we can misuse. And perhaps you've been in a situation where you've asked a friend, Why hasn't God answered my prayers for this or that thing? Or Why has God allowed this thing to happen to me? And your friend, has replied, ah, oh, well, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, which sounds a lot more spiritual than saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, but uh, we use it so often as a kind of rather spiritual sort of cop-out Um, when something has happened and we don't know why or a prayer hasn't been answered and we don't know why and we just trot out that particular verse as though that kind of explains it. But actually if we look again at this passage we see that that's not the meaning of the verse. That's not what God is saying at this point. And to understand what this passage is telling us and what that verse is telling us, we need to ask three questions today about this passage. What is God calling us to do here? Why is he calling us to do it? And what will the result be when we do what God is calling us to do? So firstly then, what is God calling us to do in this passage? Well, the passage begins by urging people to do three things in relation to God. Seek him, call upon him, return to him. And it's especially addressing the wicked and the unrighteous, it says. So we could see it as primarily a call to those who are not saved to repent and to turn to God. However, I think it is also applicable to those of us who are now saved. those of us who have repented and turned to God. Because seeking, calling, even returning to God are not one-off actions. We don't seek God only at the point of conversion. We don't call on him only once in our lives. And we all know times in which we're conscious of a need to return to God. Conscious perhaps that Um, that our relationship with God, we've allowed it to grow more distant, to not be as close and as intimate as it once was. And so we're conscious then of a need to return to God, to get closer to him once again, even though we are no longer those who God would call the unrighteous, because we have become, been made righteous. Yet still, we can say, yes, we need to seek, we need to call, we need to return to God. These are continuous activities, things that we need to do every day. And with these instructions in this passage come an assurance. It says, seek him because he will be found. Call upon him because he is near. There is an assurance there. There are promises there to us that Jesus also echoed in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 7. Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So, God has given us an assurance there that when we draw near to him, we find he is close. When we call upon him, we find he will answer. When we seek him, we know that he will be found by us. So the instruction to us comes with that assurance. It comes with that promise. So that is what God is calling us to do in this passage. So why is he calling people to do this? Why does God tell wicked and unrighteous people in particular here to draw near? What's going to happen to them when they do? Well, the answer is not what you might expect because people might presume that a holy and righteous God would summon the wicked and the unrighteous into his presence for judgment and punishment. As though he is summoning them and saying, come, draw near so that I can judge you for your wickedness. I can punish you for your unrighteousness. But instead we read, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God For he will abundantly pardon. It's an extraordinary truth that the God in heaven looks at the people of the world in all their wickedness, all of their sin, and is moved with compassion for them. That the desire of his heart should be to forgive. Even as Christians, this can be a reality that we find difficult to truly believe, especially at those times when we struggle to draw near to God because we're conscious that we've been going the wrong way. That in those times when we're aware that we've done the wrong thing, that we've been heading down the wrong path, and maybe we have a desire in our heart to draw near to God once again, And yet at the same time, a doubt. Is he really going to receive me? Is God going to have compassion on me? Has God really forgiven these things that I've done? And it's for this reason, because that is, I think, the way our minds instinctively still think, that the passage moves on to that well-known phrase, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. The reason why God's heart is moved to compassion and to abundant forgiveness is because he is not like us, because he is so different from us. Our forgiveness the way that we think about forgiveness, the way that we behave in relation to forgiveness, is very different to God's. And we can see that in many different ways. Firstly, far from being abundant forgivers, very often we are rather reluctant and grudging forgivers. I remember once back at university. Uh, I'd been in a, I'd met up with a couple of people, and one of them had accused me of saying something that I had not said. And I came away from the conversation with this person, and I was cycling back uh, from uh, the room where we'd had that meeting back to my room in the college, and I was cycling along the road, and I was grumbling to myself. And I was thinking, Ugh, how dare they? How dare they say that about me? How dare they say, claim that I said something that I hadn't said? How dare they falsely accuse me? And as I was grumbling away to myself on the bike, I can remember so clearly God spoke to me and he just said, you've got to forgive them. And I said, I don't want to forgive them. I'm enjoying feeling like this. It makes me feel all self-righteous to be thinking, oh, I've been falsely accused. And uh, I'm quite enjoying feeling annoyed about it because it makes me feel good and self-righteous. I'm the victim here. And I can go and tell all my friends that I've been wrongly accused and they'll feel sorry for me. And they'll say, oh yeah, we know you would never say anything like that, Edward. And isn't that terrible? We feel so sorry for you. And I'll feel even better. And if I forgive them, I can't do any of that. So if I didn't want to forgive them. I was very reluctant to forgive, grudging in my forgiveness. And we're often like that, rather grudging in our forgiveness. And of course, another difference is, when we do forgive... Very often, we don't forget. We can hold on to grudges. And we can hold on to the memories of wrongs that we feel have been done to us for years and years. We, we keep very thorough records of wrongs, ready to dig them out years in the future if we think it will be to our advantage. See, when, when I was a child, my parents had a very large chest freezer real 1970s appliance the big chest freezer they lived out in the garage and over the years certain items kind of sank to the bottom corners of this chest freezer to be forgotten for years and years and only when we got rid of the freezer and had to had to defrost it and then empty it did these mysterious unlabeled packages kind of emerge from the frozen recesses like those sort of prehistoric burials that emerge from glaciers in the Alps after many, many centuries. And we can be like that. We can store things away. We can store memories of things that people said to us or did to us. We can store them away, perfectly preserved for years and years and years, and then they'll suddenly be produced once again ready to bring it out, defrost it decades later. Also, our forgiveness is very legalistic. In our relationships with other people, we like to keep the scales balanced. So we feel that, uh, well, if, if they forgive us for something we did, then we'll forgive them for something they did, and that'll keep the scales in balance, and it'll all be fair. So we can have that very transactional, legalistic attitude to forgiveness. If I'm going to forgive this person, well they've got to do something in return for me. We want some action on their part. Maybe some public apology so everybody else can see it. So we can have that very legalistic, transactional attitude towards forgiveness. So that's how forgiveness tends to be among us humans. And that's something so deeply ingrained in our thinking and our behavior that we then view God in that image. We project our attitudes towards forgiveness onto him. We think that God stands more ready to judge than to forgive. We think he will require penance from us before he will forgive when our hearts want to respond to his call to seek him and to draw near, we can still think that he must have himself one of those big chest freezers in which He stored every wrong thought, every wrong action that we've had, ready to bring them out. When God says here in this passage, my ways are higher than your ways, He is showing us just how far off the mark is our perception of his compassion and his willingness to forgive. He doesn't think like us. He doesn't act like us. And moreover, he says that this is not just a small difference. He's not just slightly different from us in this respect. But he is as far removed from our thoughts and actions as the heavens are from the earth. As far as we could possibly conceive. God's thoughts of compassion and his action of forgiveness of us stretch far beyond our mental horizons. I said at the start that we can often misunderstand this verse. One of the ways we can misunderstand it is to think that it's telling us that God is remote from us. That when he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, that that means, oh, He's unknowable then. He's so distant from us. He is so far removed from us that we, we can't possibly know him because his thoughts and actions are going to be beyond our understanding. But in fact, it means the opposite. It is because God's compassion and forgiveness are so much higher and greater than ours that we can seek him, that we can draw near to him with confidence, that we can know him that we can be in relationship with him. And because we have this assurance that his love and forgiveness are not as limited as ours, we see further evidence of this in the other verse in the Bible that uses this same turn of phrase. And that's in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 in verse 10 it says, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Both of the places in the Bible that use that phrase as high as the heavens are above the earth are talking about God's love and forgiveness of us. And as a final piece of evidence in this passage, it tells us that God doesn't stint on his forgiveness. It says he will abundantly pardon. He is generous with his forgiveness. He overflows with his forgiveness. He's not grudging with it at all because he's not like us. He forgives abundantly. And this attitude of abundance, this overflowing nature, is seen in God's forgiveness, it's seen in his compassion, it is in fact seen in all of his dealings with us. The Puritan writer John Owen, he had this to say about God's abundant giving to us. Whatever he gives us, his grace to assist us, his presence to comfort us, he does it abundantly. Is it pardoning mercy that we receive from him? Well, he does abundantly pardon. He will multiply or add to pardon. He will add pardon to pardon. Grace and mercy will abound above all our sins and iniquities. Is it the Spirit that he gives? Well, he sheds him upon us richly and abundantly. He not only bids us to drink of the water of life freely, but he also bestows him in such a plentiful measure that rivers of water flow from those who receive him. They will never thirst any more when they have drunk of him. Is it grace that we receive of him? He gives that in bounty also. We receive abundance of grace. Christ deals with bountifully with us so he is so much not like us that he gives all things in abundant and overflowing measure more than we can possibly need more than we can even contain the passage then moves on it moves on to tell us what God's abundant compassion has moved him to do for us And this goes back to this legalistic, transactional attitude that we have towards forgiveness, to winning other people's favor. That in all of our dealings with one another, we tend to be transactional. It is based on an idea, well, if I do do something for them, then they will do something for me because they'll owe me in some way. And so often our cultures All over the world, our cultures are so often based around that idea, this transactional thing. Everything's got to be fair. Everything's got to be balanced. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. And again, we project that onto our relationship with God. And so humanity's solutions to the problem raised at the beginning of the passage that humanity is wicked and unrighteous. There is a problem. So what is is humanity's solution to that then? Well, of course, it is transactional and legalistic. Man-made religions, what solution do they offer to this problem? Well, they say that if you make certain sacrifices, or if you pray a certain number of times each day, or if you meditate according to a certain formula then you will earn God's favor. You do those things for him, he will do something for you. They're all based on transactions. You make a payment in some way and you will receive something in return. But God's ways are higher than our ways and our thoughts are so different from his thoughts. And so, God's solution is totally unlike our solutions. All of our solutions involve all of our efforts in trying to get from the earth to him. But instead, we see in the passage here, it is heaven coming down to earth. It says the rain and the snow come down from heaven. We saw a couple of weeks ago, that the, generally the rain is not grudging. The rain comes down in abundance, whether we like it or not. And so here we see the rain and the snow are being poured down from heaven. And it also says this, this rain, what it is that's actually coming down from heaven, is God's word. God sends his word from heaven to the earth as a solution to our problem the verse of course reminds us of the beginning of John's gospel the word was with God the word was God the word became flesh and dwelt among us it is Jesus God's word who has been sent to accomplish everything that is necessary in God's plan of salvation And when it says that the word shall not return to God empty, but shall accomplish everything for which it was purposed, I think then of Jesus ascending to heaven, returning to his Father as described in this passage, having succeeded in accomplishing everything for which he was sent to the earth. And this means that God's love for us is not dependent on our efforts to keep ourselves pure and righteous, but rather on our coming to him to receive everything that he has done for us. So he says to us, draw near, draw near, not for punishment, not for condemnation, but draw near to me to receive everything that I have done for you. So then the third question, what will the result be of drawing near to God? Well, the passage concludes by showing us that what we receive when we come to God is not only forgiveness, but a future more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine. Because his thoughts are so much higher than ours, that we can't conceive fully of the glorious future that we are inheriting. But the passage goes on to show us something, give us a glimpse of this glorious future. We live at a time when the future of creation is usually painted in very dark tones. The words used in the media, when they talk about the future of the world around us, they usually use words like crises, catastrophe, apocalypse but if we look beyond the predictions being made for the next few decades to see what the Bible says about the ultimate destiny and future of creation we see a very different picture. What we see is that when humanity is restored at the return of Jesus all of creation will be restored with us and the scene described here at the end of our passage is of Jesus presenting us, all of us, in our newly restored bodies to a newly restored creation. And as Jesus does so, as Jesus leads us out into this newly restored creation, the creation responds to the sight of us with a display of joy and celebration. Maybe it's like the burst of colors that we see in spring, because around us at the moment everything is a little bit gray, there's not much color around us at this time of year, but we know in just a couple of months we're going to see the trees bursting forth in blossom and the flowers springing up again from the ground and this sudden outbreak of color all around us. And it seems what it's trying to describe here at the end of the passage is that sort of bursting forth of color, but on a scale and a vibrancy that we have never seen before, beyond anything that we've experienced or can imagine, is what we will see when Jesus leads us out and presents us to this newly restored creation. This passage has taken us on an amazing journey. It began with wicked and unrighteous people who were far from God. It ends with a restored people living in a restored creation. And all of this is because of what Jesus has done. So, what should our response be to this passage? Well, it must be to daily obey the instructions given at the start. Seek him, call upon him, return to him, keep on seeking him, keep on calling upon him, keep on returning to him. We've seen that Jesus is ready to abundantly give us compassion and grace and everything else that we need. The only limit is on how often we will draw near to him to receive these things. John Owen again said, if we are restricted in anything, it is in ourselves, for Christ deals bountifully with us. Indeed, the great sin of believers is that we do not make use of Christ's bounty as we ought to do. We do not take mercy from him in abundance every day. The oil never ceases till the vessels cease. Supplies from Christ fail only when we fail in receiving them. There are times when we've been going our own way, perhaps we've been relying on our own resources, or we've made mistakes, made wrong choices. At those times, we can perhaps doubt, question a little bit whether we can draw near to God, whether... He will have compassion on us if we do so. It's at those times we can draw hope from this passage. God is not like us. His compassion and forgiveness are so much higher and greater than ours. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So let us draw near once again. Let's draw near in worship in singing again now to God and draw upon the grace that he is abundantly giving to us just as the band comes back up can we just stand and pray stand and focus our gaze again upon God Whatever it is that you feel you're in need of from God at this moment, as we once again draw near to him, call upon him and seek him, whatever it is that you stand in need of this morning, remember those words, the oil never ceases. The only limit is on our capacity to receive. So just receive once again that oil, that limitless abundant oil from God that is being poured out upon us. Everything that he gives, he gives in abundance. His Holy Spirit is being poured out upon us in such measure we can't even contain him. It just pours into us and then overflows like rivers flowing from us. Thank you, Lord. Let's worship God again.